0: Got a real treat for you guys today, because today I have my two partners, Garrett Lynch and Drew Niffitt, partners in Nighthawk Equity, which is our investment firm, where we actually buy apartment buildings. We just don't teach people how to do it, we actually do it ourselves, which is really cool. And we're going to address some of your most pressing questions today, which is about what's going on in the economy, and more importantly, what's going to happen. Is now a good time to invest? Is now a good time to get started? Or maybe should we wait a little bit? And we're going to address that in this episode as well. So I just want to give a shout out to Mark who left us a review on Apple podcast. He says this podcast provides great content for investors who want to scale up. Thanks Michael and Garrett. I've been binge listening to your show since I stumbled upon it. I like that you're staying current, especially that's what we're going to do today, especially given the rapid develops and change in sentiment in the marketplace. Keep up the awesome guests and the great work Mark. That's exactly what we're going to do. Appreciate that feedback. We have a lot of great guests on the show we talk about relevant topics, and today we're going to talk about what's in everybody's mind is where in the world are we right now, and where is the market going? So I just want to, we, we 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 love first deal makers. We love people when, when they do a first deal, when they quit their job, and also when they bridge the 1,000-unit milestone. Today, I want to shout out Janish Patel, and he purchased an eight-unit Chicago. It was worth $800,000 with a $250,000 capital raise. And he used the SDA, watched the training videos in the SDA along with the YouTube to help him close his first deal. So congratulations, Janesh, on using some of our programs to help you do your first deal. So you're now on your way to financial freedom. With that, let's bring in a co-host Garrett Lynch. Garrett, what's going on? What's going on, Michael? So normally we would banter back and forth, but we got a lot to cover in today's call here, and we have a special guest.
1: We do. Andrew Niffin is joining us today, which I'm super excited about it. I know Michael is. Drew and I are, are always in the trenches, making sure things are, are working in our portfolio. He has a really strong background in owning apartments, having owned at least 400 just himself, and has a background in corporate finance and real estate. So all the all those skills come in handy when we're running a business together. So welcome, Drew.
2: Thanks, Derek. Great to be here. Great to be talking to you and, and Michael on the podcast today.
1: Cool. So, I think what we're going to do is dive into a few topics that are on everyone's mind, I know, which is what the heck is going on in the market right now, and we're going to give our our market outlook and just just kind of give you guys an update as to where we're thinking things are and how we're we're making decisions inside of the business. So, right now we're kind of we're in the market cycle. It was it was really you know hot, like super hot. Then it got you know cold. And and in the last year, it's been it's been really tough to make anything happen. I think we peaked out probably around maybe maybe February like around that. Michael, maybe you can talk a little bit about kind of where we're at. You know, I
0: mean, everything goes through seasons, right? And and the economy and investing in real estate is no no difference. Before COVID, like you said, it was it was like summer. Summer was red hot, right? It was crazy. People were like, oh, the market is too hot. Then all of a sudden COVID hit, came to a screeching halt. All of a sudden it was like Arctic, Arctic freezing cold. Oh my gosh, it's too cold right now. Maybe I should wait till it warms up. And then within months it warmed up. You're like, oh, it's hot, too hot again, right? And so I think what happened is for years, probably since 20, I would say 2015, 16, the market really was on a tear. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't screw anything up with real estate. And so it was this really long summer and all of a sudden COVID hit and there was this volatility and we skipped the fall and landed right in winter. So I think we're in winter right now. You can argue whether in the beginning, middle, or towards the end of it, but I think we're in a recession right now. And a lot of people would agree with that. Some people say, oh, well, we're not really in recession now, but if you look at the numbers, you see various indicators that, in hindsight, will look like a recession. For example, housing prices are falling, due, of course, to, to interest rates going up. But more importantly, the inflation has been a major problem and how do you know this is a major problem you know what with things like for example credit card debt credit card debt is literally this month going to cross the highest ever personal credit card debt in the history of the u.s world okay so the highest why because people are using their credit cards to pay the bills right at the same time savings rate is literally at a record low which means that people have depleted their savings rates and are now going into credit cards if you look at the jobs report, if you study it really great, all these jobs are getting created. But if you look at the fine print, it's actually not new jobs being created. It's people taking second jobs. Why are people taking on a second job? It's because they're not making enough money in their first job. And that's why jobs are being created. But that's not a sign of a strong economy. That's a, that's a sign of a very weak economy. And so people are getting squeezed on their expenses. And as a result of of that, the demand is down somewhat. The retail spending is down, which is why you see some retailers like Amazon laying people off. Sure. But there's also some tech companies laying people off. What does that have to do with anything? The reason they're laying people off is because the stock market's down and the money has stopped. The cheap money has stopped flowing. Right. So cheap money was used to finance expansion. That's gone. We can't use that. Then they also use the stock market. They would sell their stock to finance growth. Both of those are gone. Now they can't finance growth. They're like, oh, crap, we're overhired. So to me, that's all that is. It's a recession. Right. And so I think that things are going to get worse before they get better. How much worse? Hard to tell. I don't think they're going to get catastrophic, but it may get it may get worse before it gets better. But here's the good news, okay? This is from my from from my own experience as well as studying millionaires and billionaires, right? What here's what I know: I know that if you do okay in the winter, you will do very well in the spring and summer. And so, because of what's going on, I'm convinced that we'll have more new millionaires in the next five years than any time in history. That's where I think we are. I think we're in winter right now and what we need to do is we need to survive that winter so it sets up
1: to thrive in spring. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think we're in a just in a place now where there's there is that uncertainty, there is that the fear that's looming. People are a little not sure exactly what to do as far as you know, us us purchasing and which is a part of our plan is to continue to acquire properties and and set up the right game plan for that property no matter where it's at in the cycle. You know that slowdown happened at the end of last year so we didn't even do one deal through the whole end of of last year we just recently got one and and, the, and we'll talk about this in a bit but it's the first sign of like some some real value that we can pull out of this the situation so Drew anything else to add
2: yeah I mean we we've had a, a great run of it for the last few years and I think that we've had this huge turmoil Michael's calling it winter I think that's an apt analogy and and everyone's taking a little bit of a pause as far as where things are going, and these things all do come in cycles, right? So I, I think in this compressed time where we're noticing that we feel like we're in winter, it's important to remember the long term trends of real estate, what it's done over the decades for people. I keep that in mind. So so yeah, we're looking at the short term things. We're always watching rent increases, what's happening in, for occupancy in our markets. We're looking at the cost of labor and the cost of materials because that influences our construction. So we're we're keeping an eye on all those things and having it impact our, our, our models and how we look at deals. We're also keeping track of those long-term things. Where are people moving to? Where is their job creation, whether it's some of the weak job creation that Michael was talking about, or, or some of the stronger job location, You know, where are Fortune 500 companies putting their headquarters? And, and that's driving our investment decisions. And the good news is on the long-term trends that we're looking at, those things still remain really strong. Household formation remains really strong. You know, our core thesis in apartments hasn't changed, but certainly it does feel like a different environment than what we were looking at well, one, two years ago. And it, it pays attention to be looking at those things to know how to be nimble and, and, and operate in this new environment.
0: You said look at some of the short term trends versus longer term trends. I'm going to. I going to look at the longer-term trends in a, in a second, but short-term trends really affect deal flow, right? How do we how do we get deals done right now? So, can we talk about what are we looking at right now, and how are we underwriting deals, and how are we getting deals done right now in a rapidly changing environment? What are some of those drivers and variables, and maybe some guidance around how people should underwrite deals right now?
1: Yeah, I think so. Right now, a lot of people are switching. So, we had this this. Era this period of time where everyone was competing using bridge loans on their deals. And so these are variable rate short-term loans with typically high leverage. And so you're seeing a lot of those coming to expire right now. And, and it's causing it's problematic for, for some operators, especially if they're not a position to refinance or sell or anything like that. So as far as new deals go, there's definitely, you know, you can't get debt that's over typically 65% leverage on anything substantial, that's that's going to be a fixed rate long-term play. And a lot of people are looking at those types of loans for security, unless you have a real deep value add asset in which you're going to hedge against the risk that is affiliated with bridge debt loans. So in, in the way you do that, it's just buying a really expensive cap.
0: So debt, um, debt is, debt is the major, I think that would say the major difference between now and, you know, back in March, right? Debt. It's, the, it's
1: the, I, if I had to point to one thing, it's yeah. debt.
0: Yeah. So, so what happened guys is really what happens though, though because of this inflation, this fear of in, and rise of interest rates, it created a lot of interest rate volatility in the debt markets. And of course, when t- volatility increased the level of fear and uncertainty and risk goes up what the lenders did is they just chopped the LTV. So before we were getting, you know, 75%, 80%, 80% we were through bridge loans, financing part of the construction. And all of a sudden they collapsed to like 55%. And so it put the entire industry to a screeching halt because if you can't if you can't have 70% LTV, let's say, you can't pay the same price. You got to raise more equity. And so that's why there was a giant price collapse uh, that was really happening early on. And so how did we overcome that? Or, or how how are operators going to overcome that?
1: What's happening now? Well, go ahead, Drew.
2: Yeah, no, there's a couple of things you got to do. So, for, first of all, there's a little bit of a standoff between buyers and sellers, right? So, the sellers, right. there's in their mind, they still have fixed the numbers from early 2022 when they could get, you know, make it out $50 million for an asset, right? But when, when the cost of debt has doubled, you know, buyers can't pay that uh, and get the same returns. So, some, something's got to give, right? So, if either the buyers have to have lower expectations of their returns or the sellers have to come down on their prices, or a little bit of both. So we're seeing that adjustment happening in the market. And as, as Garrett said, people that have properties where their interest rate caps are coming, they're expiring, it is a little bit of a complicated process, but basically the, the financial markets and their debt position, how they structure their deal is driving them to sell. They have to sell. And so there is gonna be a flood of deals coming onto the market in the next 12, 18 months. And so for those buyers, that have the capital and know how to underwrite well, they'll be able to survive that situation. But then, right, explain,
0: then, explain that, explain what's going on right now, because this yeah. is part of the opportunity that yeah. we're starting to see. It's not quite here, but we're starting to see it. So explain, explain all that interest rate cap, it, rising interest rate. What, how does that affect the average operator?
2: Yeah. So, so first off, there's an amazing article in the Wall Street Journal today about this. It said rising interest rates hit landlords who can't afford their hedging costs. And so think about it like this. Let's say you get five or 10-year debt on your property. So you have a mortgage essentially of 10 years. But if it but you have an interest rate cap on top of that mortgage, and that cap can be as short as 18 months, 24 months. And that's the real thing we're talking about. So even if you have a 10-year mortgage, if you have a two-year cap, what that means is after that cap expires, the interest rates, as they fluctuate, you're no longer covered from that fluctuation. You're paying the full increase in interest rates and that's going to mean for those owners that aren't fully hedged on their interest rates that are floating they're going to start paying double in in what their debt service is on top of that even before their interest rate cap expires their loan servicers are going to say hey in 12 months your cap's going to expire we need to start escrowing money to buy a new cap now and that used to be, it obviously depends on the asset, but it used to be, let's call it $1,000 a month. And that same $1,000 a month is going up to $3,000, $5,000, $10,000, and putting tremendous financial pressure on that apartment building. So so that's the mechanics that's going to drive a lot of opportunity for buyers in the near future. All right, just well, so you understand. Now- so
0: just so what's happening is that the, the cash flow is being squeezed by the, by the rise in interest rates up to the cap, okay? Let's say it's 2%. That squeezes debt cash flow, and then the increase in required escrows further decreases cash flow. Is that did I hear that right? But then, what about the expiring cap? how How does one pay for that?
1: The expiring cap is another one. It's another headwind that that comes up because you if your loan ends, you have two problems. One, you have to be able to afford whatever the lender says your cap needs to be, and typically those are are very very expensive. So, on like a thirty million dollar loan. You're looking at seven 700K to as much as a million two for one year of that, that interest rate cap, and that's just a hedge against the rising interest rates, right? The other issue you're dealing with is if there's an extension on the bridge loan, you have to operate well enough to qualify for that. There are debt yield constraints that if you don't meet those criteria, you have to either buy down the asset into, into a level where it can meet those debt criteria. Mm-hmm or you forfeit the property over to the bank. So it's pretty dire. You're getting squeezed. As time gets longer, as these interest rates stay up, and as time extends, you're going to see more and more of this issue coming. A lot of these people that were in the the bridge debt loans, they recently got them. So there's still a little bit of time left and they're trying to ride it out. And so as you get further into it, you run into these headwinds. And if you don't have access to capital as an operator or as, as an owner, it's gonna be a really rough ride for you.
0: So you said something that I want to hone in on. If you're not a good operator, you won't meet debt service coverage ratio requirements. You won't be able to renew the loan or refinance. Okay, but that's the key. Let's talk about that for a second, right? Because here I mean, here's what we're seeing across the board. There are good operators and there's average operators. Obviously, there's bad operators, but the good operators are getting their, their cash flow squeezed just as way than anybody else. The difference though is that they're not going cash flow negative and that they're operating with 90% occupancy and therefore can either renew the loan or refinance out of the loan. That's the difference. Now, of course, what happens to investor distributions, Drew? Like during this time for good operators, what, happened, what happens to that? Should, should investors expect the same level of distribution as before or or something less?
2: Yeah, the truth is that that it, it, the distributions will not always be the same as what they were before, right? If, if interest rates are going to double, it's going to have an impact on distributions for investors. So as as this market changes, we're all adjusting, and that does include investors and what their expectations could be going forward. Now, having said that, if I can, we've we've really doubled down on our operational capabilities in the last year, seeing this coming. Right. So we've taken our team at Nighthawk, and we we've increased our, our headcount by by four hundred percent in the last year because we really want to dot our I's and cross our t's. On our operations, working with our property management to make sure that we execute as best we can in this environment to deliver on our business plan and for our investors.
0: If you're interested in passively investing in multifamily syndications, we'd love to hear from you. Go to nighthawkequity.com, click the join button, and join our investment club. Fill out a short form. And then you can have a call with us and we'd be happy to share with you some of our upcoming investment opportunities we have. That's NighthawkEquity.com. Talk to you soon. So, Drew, that was for the good operators, right? Good operators means that they're going to survive the storm because they were cash flow positive to begin with. They're operating well. They have options, right? Now, the average operator or maybe the below average operator, let's say below average operator, they are not operating at 90%. Their cash flow was skinny before. And what could happen to the below average operator?
1: So the below average operator, and I've I'm already seeing this right now, not a ton of these operators are talking about their problems. The few that I know that have, and I've I've been at mm-hmm. a few conferences, and you can tell there's something wrong, but no one wants to admit it yet. And I was able to go to one, and I pulled it out. A lot of people it didn't even have interest rate caps, and their operations were flopping. And those operators that are in that position, they're going to run out of time, and they're going to be forced to sell to recover whatever they can, or they have to find access to some kind of capital to recapitalize the deal somehow. So the, there's going to be you're going to see both of those scenarios play out. Now, if the markets interest rates come down, it's going to help. It's going to obviously put people in a better position to refinance, but you have to operate your property at a high level. You have to be 95% occupied. 90 is like the minimum threshold to be able to get dollars from a bank to take you out of your old loan. I think we're right at that stage where you know we're we're about, I'd say in another year, you're going to see a lot more of this playing out. So
0: what is the timing on, on, on this and next year or so? And and with regards to opportunity, Drew, what, is that, what does that mean for us and any, any operator or even passive investor as you're eyeing the space, how do you assess the opportunity?
2: Well, there's going to be dislocation and dislocation creates opportunity. And, and you know, that's what we're seeing right now. So in the deal that we just put under contract and that we're going to market with in a little bit, there are some challenges for the owner. And the owner is just unloading this asset. And there's lots of upside for us, both on on rent increases, occupancy increases, collections. So this challenge that that we're talking about in this call is really going to create the opportunities for buyers. And as as Garrett said, I think that barely anyone's talking about it right now. Everyone's kind of trying to hope that the storm blows over and and they make it out unscathed. And that's not going to happen for a lot of people. So as as the next year rolls out, I think we're going to start seeing more deals. We're going to get more phone calls from brokers saying, hey, I got to unload this asset. Otherwise, the bank's going to come grab it You know, in the next six months. What offer can you provide? And we're going to say, man, there's some hair on that thing. We got some problems here with collections, occupancies, set outs. Best we can do is X. And, and we're really going to be able to find good opportunities because people are put under pressure and they can't be patient to sell it at the right time. They have to sell it now. And that's where good operators can step in.
1: Michael, how do you think we can survive this winter so that we can thrive in the spring? Yeah, that's
0: that's a really, really good question, right? Because as an investor, you're constantly asking yourself this question, where in the world do I put my money, right? Well, stock market, that used to be the only place, you know, like, daggone the stock market's down 20%. And most analysts are saying it's going down further, right? Because it was fueled by cheap money, which is no longer available, right? So. Well, you can put in crypto. Well, that train has left the station, you know, and is crashed and burned. So, where in the world can you put your money? And and let's look, let's look at the, the people who are really rich, like Warren Buffett. How does he make his millions? I'm sorry, billions. Right? He makes it in a winter. He sits there patiently. I remember reading articles about him in the dot com era, and he's sitting in the sideline and everybody else going, You are a dumbass. Look at you, Warren, you're an idiot. You're not even, you're missing the boat. And he's like, yeah, it just doesn't pencil, doesn't pencil. Right. And he was right. And then in, in the in the recession, he picked up high quality companies with very strong fundamentals that were somehow undervalued. Now, why were they undervalued? Right. And and it's, it, it's because there's fear in the market. And it's just like it is now. The reason that everything's down is because, there's fear. There's fear about recession. There's fear about inflation. There's fear about war. There's fear about your job, right? Fears everywhere. And so there's even fear, of course, in the multifamily market. So case in point, let's analyze. You said the high point was in February, February, March, high prices, the lowest cap rates in freaking history, right? Two months later, prices are down by ah, 15% like that. It's like the bottom fell out of it, but why did it change? Why did, did the demand for housing drop? Did rents drop? no, it didn't drop at all, right? The fundamentals didn't change at all. What changed was fear. And fear caused buyers to pull back and caused lenders to lower their loan proceeds. So, but the fundamentals never changed. The demand for affordable housing remains higher than ever before. There's still a housing shortage, right? It doesn't matter. Inflation is still driving up rents, even today at a slower pace and not going up 20% anymore, right? Now people are reducing their retail spending Okay, that's true, but they always need a place to live. We saw that right the weeks after COVID when people stopped doing everything, but nevertheless continue to pay their rent. They need a place to live, right? So the the fundamentals stayed strong, yet prices are down. Therefore, it is a temporary condition in the market where, like Warren Buffett, we're looking for investments that are fundamentally sound, but temporarily underpriced, right? And so what I'm saying is we need to look for opportunities to buy undervalued assets that have several different requirements. One is they have to perform well in down markets, right? We have to look at what's called risk adjusted return, meaning that you don't just look at the return. Oh, look at the 18% IRR in that deal. Meanwhile, you know, it's a crypto farming deal, okay? Super high return, but the risk is not taken into consideration. Now investors like, oh gosh, risk. What was that thing again? Risk. Oh man, you mean I could lose money? So in other words, the advice to investors is look for an investment that has a risk-adjusted return. So it's not just a return, but it's also the level of risk. So you want something with relatively low risk and relatively high return. That's number one. Number two is you want to invest in real assets. Is crypto real asset? Can anyone explain to me what actually drives up the value of cryptocurrency? No one can explain this to me. It's pure speculation. On the other hand, for example, gold is actually a real asset, right? There's there's a finite amount of gold. And gold is great because you know, a single ounce of gold back in 1918 bought a very nice suit. Today, it's about $1,800 an ounce. Today, a single ounce of gold will buy a very nice suit. Therefore, somehow magically gold maintains the value, which in an, in an area where inflation is super high and cash is losing 10% of its value every single year, gold might not be a bad idea. But, so it's a real asset, but it doesn't cash flow. You can't cash flow and there's no tax benefits. Okay, now we introduce real estate to the mix, where I have a risk-adjusted return. Risk-adjusted meaning that it performed very well in basically every recession since the beginning of time. In the 80s, it po- performed much better than anything else. The dot-com bust, it performed much better than else. 2008, it performed vastly different than any real estate at all. And COVID was a surprise shocker to all of us. So it performs, what happens is the asset class is basically flat during really bad times. Okay, where everything else is down, this asset class is flat. Rents are flat, you know, incomes are flat. Okay, but we're surviving. But when it comes out of that time, it just explodes. So real estate gives you that risk-adjusted return we talked about. It gives you an inflation hedge like gold, because as inflation goes up, everything else goes up, including rents, which of course increases the value of the of the real estate. Number two, you have tax advantages that you don't have anywhere else. Oil, maybe a little bit, but the tax advantages are are unfathomable for, for real estate. So my advice is look for a risk adjusted asset and then ideally make it a real asset. There's other real assets too. Multifamily is not the only one. You got mobile home parks, self-storage are real assets. You know, my friend David Zook has ATMs. That's a real asset. He's got some car washes. That's a real asset. But look for a real asset that satisfies those requirements, has a risk adjusted return, is an inflation hedge, produces cash flow, and has tax advantages. So that's how I think we survive the winter.
1: Yeah, I agree with a lot of that, Mike. All of it. I think that, you know, our asset class is, is particularly resilient in general. It depends on what type you're you're purchasing, of course. If you're buying A-class properties, that's going to take a bigger equity hit in a down market than than say, you know, B or C class. But then on the on the flip side, on, on C class assets or even D class, you're going to have a lot more operational challenges. So that's why, again, we stick kind of in the B range, the C plus, the, the B minus, all the way up the B range. And we're looking for those quality opportunities, but at the same time. Making sure that we're operating and holding on to these properties for the long term. So the nice thing about these assets is that they're not super liquid. So we don't have we don't have the ability to just dump them. We we stick with it and we we can hold through these times. Whereas, you know, in a stock market, there's a panic, you can easily just sell your your shares and and be done with them, right? And so so we're in a position where We can build upon what we've already started. The game plan continues forward, and we just ride through the storm. Go ahead, Drew.
2: Just to piggyback on what you said, Garrett, I I saw this stat once, and it blew me away. I I dug at it for for quite a long time to try to figure it out more. But the stat is that the average return of the stock market, call it in the last 30 years, was 7.7%. But the average return for the typical investor in the stock market was like 4%. It's like, how can that be, right? If the market is 7.7, people should get 7.7. Well, the answer is exactly what you said, Garrett. It's that people have liquidity in the stock market, which sounds really good. But then what's up happening is you're like, oh, Tesla's at $1,500. It's rallied 10x in the last year. I'm going to buy some, right? And then it goes down by, you know, half. And you're like, I'm going to sell right at the bottom. So they, they buy at the top and they sell at the bottom. So the liquidity of the stock market actually works against people because they they are not forced to have a long-term perspective. And real estate for us actually gives us that opportunity to ride (laughs) things out and not be emotional, but still just operate in our plan. So I love that about our business. Even though people think of liquidity or illiquidity as as a bad thing, it actually works in our favor.
0: That's funny you say that. I always thought that was the one advantage of investing in Multifamily syndication is the illiquidity of an investment. But in times like this, it's actually it's actually a positive thing. We can ride things out. And at the end, it comes out okay. It comes out okay, versus, like you said, buying at the top and then selling at the bottom, you can't make any progress.
2: Yeah, so guys, I mean, let's, let's just conclude here. What's our outlook for the multifamily market in 2023? As we enter into the year, what do you see happening? Garrett, I'll let you lead off first.
1: So what I think is going to happen is that interest rates are going to, they're going to go up a little bit and they're going to flatten most likely, but I think it'll last a little while as far as them sticking around in the higher levels. I don't, a lot of people are speculating like it's going to come back down pretty rapidly and and this and that. And while that is a definite outcome, it could happen. I don't think it will personally. I think that the debt markets are going to to definitely adjust as well. And depending on where things fall, I mean you may, you may get a little bit more leverage from these lenders depending on how they loosen things. Right now there's a lot of scrutiny. Everybody's under a microscope on not only if you like if you own properties right now, they're looking at every little thing, auditing you all the time as well as if you're buying a deal there or whatever, refinancing tons of scrutiny. And so I think they're going to loosen up a little bit and you're going to see more debt products in the market that will hit and allow for more trading to happen towards the end of the year. Right now for the next six months or so, I'd say it's still probably going to be similar to where it's at now. So we'll we'll see. But as it gets later towards the end of the year, you should see some of that stuff loosen up. I do believe that there's going to be more deals to be had. I've already heard that in Q1 and Q2 this year that's coming. I've already heard it. So there's people, there's more sellers that are willing to sell right now, take some profit. They're already way ahead. And they're like, you know what, we're going to take some, something off the table on the assets, maybe that we don't care to own anymore, or they just don't work for our long-term strategy. So you're going to probably going to see some of that happen as well. Michael, anything to add? Yeah. I mean,
0: I, I agree with everything you're saying. I think we're going to get a lot more stability, specifically in the debt markets. I think that's what screwed up 2022 is the debt markets, really anything else. So, Like I said, there's nothing fundamentally that was wrong with multifamily. Rent demand was, was very strong. It's the daggone debt markets that wigged everybody out. So once it stabilizes, yes, it, it will stabilize at a higher point, but we can deal with that. What we can't deal, was very difficult to deal with was the speed with which interest rates went up in 2020. I mean, when we bought stuff two years ago, we underwrote higher interest rates. I mean, everybody, well, not everybody, but we underwrote with higher interest rates. Actually, sometimes even significantly higher interest rates, we also used much higher, much higher cap rates as well. But no one could foresee the speed with which these interest rates, and that's problem number one is interest rates going up, but the speed basically we like we talked about reduced the loan to value so much. And I think I see that stabilizing through the year. And so that'll make things a little more easier, operational, easier to buy. And then we will have that opportunity to buy up really distressed assets because that pressure on those interest rates going up, those interest rate caps are so enormous that that a lot of people won't, will not have, they just don't want enough cash to get out of it. So Drew, any other observations about where we think we're going?
2: I echo what you guys said. I think that 2022 was the year of adjustment. We fundamentally went from being sort of a, you know, one market, and then we had this transition, a bridge to this new market and their stabilization coming but because of these caps, they're going to expire over time and opportunity will pop up for those that are ready, are capitalized, and have the desire to lean into this opportunity in the next year.
0: Yeah, so my advice really is, and I I, I always say this because I always get this question, is now the right time? And, and, my, and my response is always the same. Yes, it's always the right time to get started now. Okay? It's just how you how you underwrite deals, how you get deals done, the tactics change, but the strategy don't. And the reason the strategy does do not is because the, the asset class continues to be fundamentally sound in a rapidly changing environment. So my advice to you is this, if you're a passive investor and you're scratching your head right now, where should I put my money? You know, Heed my advice about looking for risk adjusted, real assets to invest in. And multifamily, is one of those assets that you should strongly take a look at. And we'd love to have a conversation with you. Our company is called Nighthawk Equity. Head over to nighthawkequity.com and you can click to schedule a call with us so we can tell you about some of the upcoming opportunities. We have a deal under contract right now. We just hired a full-time transaction manager that helps us underwrite more deals and identify more opportunities for you. So check that out as well. And if you're if you're like, man, I I I don't have the money to invest, or I really want to be the entrepreneur. I want to find a deal. I'm going to put it together. I want to raise the money. I love all that stuff. I want to become financially free. Then now is also the time to get started. It's time to get educated on it so that you're ready to take advantage of these opportunities we talked about. Probably starting now right? And probably getting, picking up steam six to 12 months from now, be ready to pick those deals up, have your education done, have your investors line up. So if that's you, then check out some of our programs we have to help you get started with syndication. Go to themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and set up a call with us. Just book a call and explore what we can do for you. I like to say we have something for everyone and I'm sure we can help you make the next step. So, hope you guys found that useful. I hopefully it was a it was a real view. It wasn't all rosy. It was it was more realistic on what's going on right now, and and maybe some practical advice of what to do. But the bottom line is this: never wait. Today is the day. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by checking out our Freedom Vault, where you can find free resources to help you with apartment building investing. Whether you're an active investor just starting out or looking to scale your syndication business or looking to invest passively, head over to themichaelblock.com
2: slash vault to gain access to our Freedom Vault.